Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Hello, welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies. I'm your co-host, Ben Peterson. I'm here with Christopher Tato. We're going to be covering Matthew chapters 9 and 10, Mark chapter 5, and Luke chapter 9 today. We have a gospel parallels document that we study out of and are working on together. It puts the stories of the different gospels side by side, allows you to compare the different stories, the differences, the similarities. And if anybody is interested in that document, we will share it with you. Just send us a message and give us your email address. We can add it to our email list and we'll get you that document over. Christopher spent a lot of time on this. I helped a little bit with it before we started this recording. It helps us as we work our way through these Gospels to notice things that we might not otherwise notice. The first pericope this week is the healing of the paralytic from Matthew 9, 1 through 8. So we covered this story when we covered Mark 2, Ben, with the only difference I see being that Matthew, who is using Mark as one of his sources, doesn't tell us about coming down through the roof, right? Digging through the mud. Our next pericope is on the call of Levi or Matthew from Matthew 9, 9 through 13. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is actually quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 from the Old Testament. And this kind of brings up one of the points we've discussed before. Jesus hasn't come to destroy the law, as he said, but to fulfill it. And so here we have an example of him actually using the scriptures that these Pharisees are supposedly experts in to show them how they are not abiding by their own law, so to speak, right? Their own scripture, that they don't even understand their own scripture. That's a good point, Ben. And this is a a story that we already covered in Mark chapter two also. The only thing I have to add to that, Ben, is to go into that verse and look at what it says here, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, right? So this is, our, this is a quote from the Old Testament that's already what the project is, right? It sounds like something that you wouldn't find in the Old Testament, but it's here in the New Testament because it's quoting the Old Testament. So this is what Jesus is doing, right? He's not, he's not telling us necessarily something new. He's commenting on the Torah as Jews do. He's being a rabbi. And he's expanding. So if we look at the Sermon on the Mount that we covered in past weeks, you know, you have these, what we call antitheses, right? Where he says, you've heard it said, I say unto you, but these aren't really antitheses, are they, Ben? No. So, you know, like he says, he's come to fulfill the law, not to do away with it. So what he's doing as he's teaching these things is he's showing them how the law actually plays out in your life, how it would play out in the life of a living, breathing human being. It's like this. This is the fulfillment of it. And that's the way, the truth, and the life. Our next pericope is the question about fasting, Matthew 9, 14 through 17. 
this story we also covered in Mark chapter two. And the thing that stood out to me this time, Ben, going through the story is this idea of fasting when the bridegroom is no longer present. Yeah. So it's possible here that this statement about the bridegroom shall be taken from them and then they shall fast. You know, remember that this gospel is written many years after Jesus's death, resurrection. And so they're kind of looking back on the history of Christianity, as it were, for the time. Fasting wasn't really a thing when Jesus was there, but then we started fasting afterwards. And so you can kind of see how this can be written back in or understood as an interpretation of what Jesus actually said by the later Christians. Yeah, that makes sense. And this story in verse 16 about putting a piece of new cloth onto an old garment, it's kind of hard to understand. It was even hard to read. It's hard to parse it with our language, yeah. The language here in the King James Version is pretty outdated. Well, okay, I think one thing it helps to realize, too, is that the piece of new cloth is actually an unshrunk piece of cloth in the Greek, right? It's unshrunk. Now, of course, that implies new, but new doesn't tell us necessarily unshrunk. So the idea is if you put an unshrunk patch on your old garment, when the patch shrinks, it will tear the garment. Hopefully that helps understand that verse. Our next pericope is on Jairus's daughter and the woman with a hemorrhage. Matthew 9, 18 through 26. This is also covered this week from Mark 5, 21 through 43. The only comment I have on this is the idea of Jesus laying on hands is actually not the way it was done. Meaning, as far as we know from the text that we have, that's not what was done. And so it's unusual for him to do that in the context of his time and place. And yet for us, that's become the way that it's done, right? And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years. Now, this issue of blood, we don't know that it was menstrual, but we're talking about a hemorrhage, a constant flow of blood. And so I just wanted to comment, if it would be menstrual, then that would put her in a state of ritual impurity. That isn't mentioned here, but it could be implied. Well, then the implication is that if she was ritually impure and she touches Jesus, that's going to make him ritually impure. That's right. So remember that as we continue with the story. And it suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment, for she said in herself, as other translations show. Yeah, she thought. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And this is common, right? Whenever there are healers and people know about it, they just, if I could just touch them, right? If I could just get close to them, if I could just touch their clothing. We even have a story in our own tradition, Ben, where Joseph Smith sends, rather than going himself, he sends his handkerchief, right? Mm -hmm. And straightway, the fountain of her blood was dried up. So she touched his garment and straightway, the fountain of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him. It's a little weird to say virtue in today's world. It's probably the wrong word, especially in our context. What does the NRSV read? Immediately where that power had gone forth from him. So he immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, thou seest the multitude thronging thee and sayest thou who touched me? Now, there's something else here, Ben. I don't remember whether it was in 
the story we're reading in Mark or whether it's the Matthew version, but at least in one of them, if not in both, I looked at the Greek and Jesus is asking what woman touched his clothes. Hmm. He's knowing the gender of the person who touched his clothes <laughs> when he's asking the question, right? That's how it shows yeah. up in the text. Yeah, you know, I spoke too soon. It's right here in verse 32. And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. Remember, he just asked who touched me. So yeah, it's not in the yeah. who touched me. It's not in the question. It's right here. He looked round about to see her that had done this thing. So it's actually showing up here in the translation. But the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her. The important thing here is she's not fearing and trembling because she got caught doing something wrong, right? It says right here in the verse, the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her. Right? That's what has her fearing and trembling. Came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, daughter, thy faith, thy trust, right? Thy trust hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole in thy plague. She trusted that if she could just do this thing, right? That, that would, that's faith, that's trust in action. One of the things about this story, Christopher, you know, that we mentioned earlier, if she was ritually impure, and again, it's not 100% clear that she was, but if she was ritually impure and she touches Jesus, that makes him ritually impure, except the opposite happens. Jesus makes her pure as opposed to her making Jesus impure. This is a fascinating sort of turn of things on its head. It made me think about this concept that we just read a few verses earlier, that of I desire mercy, not sacrifice, right? So the question here is, is God's mercy not more powerful than our sin or our impurity? Can we have the kind of mercy that overpowers the sin of others or is at least not offended or overpowered by it? I love that question. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe, only trust. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado, and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. Now this is interesting, because is she really not dead? She's just asleep, and he's just going to wake her up? Or is he telling us that raising the dead for him is like waking someone from sleep? It is kind of an interesting statement, because... Within the culture and then also in the Old Testament, sleep is often used as a euphemism for death. And so for Jesus to specifically say she's not dead, she's sleeping, is still kind of enigmatic, right? She could still be dead, but he could also kind of be saying she is dead, but she's not permanently dead. She's not cold and dead. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted damsel, I say unto thee, arise. Now, this is Aramaic. It's being transliterated here. I don't know Aramaic, but I did read about this and I found that, interestingly, the KJV has it correct. 
because it actually says Talitha Kum, which would be the wrong gender, right? Kumi would be the feminine. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of 12 years, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly. And now straightly means this is not with a GH, right? This is strictly, yeah. Strictly, yes. Maybe even cross, right? Crossly. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Now, why something should be given her to eat? If he had raised her from the dead, she should be able to eat. If she were a ghost, not so. Right? So this is important, right? The same thing happens when Jesus is resurrected. He eats with his disciples. Just to prove that they're a living, breathing human being. Yeah. Right. Our next pericope this week is two blind men, Matthew 9, 27 through 31. And actually to complete that story, chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. You know, this son of David occurs for me, Ben. Sure, they may realize, you know, Jesus's or the, the Messiah's prophesied lineage from David. The way it sounds to me, it occurs for me. I just think of in the Middle East, you know, in Arabic speaking countries, Ya'ammi, right? Yeah. <laughs> Something like that, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, the, it's the cultural thing to say to someone who's important. Ya'ammi is literally uncle. Oh, uncle, right? I, this is, I tell any woman who's traveling to the Middle East alone, you know, if you get into trouble with maybe some young man or something, you look for the oldest guy around and you call him your uncle, but you have uh-huh. to learn to say it in Arabic and he will be bound to come to your aid, right? And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus saith unto them, believe ye that I am able to do this? Do you trust in me, right? They said unto him, yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. That's good rhetoric. See, that, that's in the Greek. See that no man know it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. <laughs> Happens every time, right? <laughs> Our next pericope is the harvest is great from Matthew nine thirty-five through 38. I think this refers to the missionary work, right? The, the spreading of the gospel that's coming up. We'll be talking about, as a matter of fact, the next pericope is on the commissioning of the 12. Uh, it's Matthew 10, 1 through 16. And when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. So in my NRSV, that verse 1, instead of saying power, it says authority. He gave them authority. I was thinking about this, you know, actually over in in Luke chapter 9, which is part of this reading, it uses the word power and authority. So we get power and then we get power and authority. I'm curious what the intended like metaphysics of this could be. You know, what what is it that he's actually giving them? What what is going on here? What's being transferred from his person to their person? I think at least for our purposes, this can be contextualized within Doctrine and Covenants 121. So we get that verse, no power or authority can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned. This is not something that's merely conferred upon us, as DNC 121 says, or conferred upon them in this case. In fact, we see an example later where they're not able to cast out a demon. 
So it's not something, again, that's just conferred upon us, but it's something we're called to be and to live. And this is so that our authority is authentic. Right, because there's a sense of authority that has to do not with hierarchy, but with experience, right? With personal right. experience. You know, you're right, Ben. And to add to that, on the one hand, they were not able to cast out demons. On the other hand, they found someone else who was doing it in Jesus's name, yeah. but who wasn't among those whom we just read Jesus gave power and or authority to. And they wanted to know, what should we do? And so and, they wanted to stop him, right? And Jesus so, said, no, so he don't said, worry no. about that. Yeah, there's there's no reason to stop him. If he's not against you, he's with you, right? If he's doing good, then he's with us. Yeah, so I think it's interesting to bring that in too, because again, whoever that was didn't have this power and authority that's spoken of here. And yet Jesus didn't have a problem with them actually doing the same thing, healing others, right? I wonder if that says anything about women in the priesthood. I think it's a good question. We talk about the authority of the priesthood, and again, we have this statement, it's conferred upon us, but that's not the whole story. There's more to the priesthood than what's conferred, right? right? There's the authenticity of this, the authority that comes from experience and faith. So as I recall, Ben, we noticed that as we were reading about Joseph Smith, that he was using authority in the second sense. At least it seemed that he might be using authority in the second sense, right? Yeah, in that experience sense. Yeah. These 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this, these are an interesting couple of verses. First of all, if you wanted to go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and you couldn't go into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, then you would have a really hard time actually getting where you need to go. That's one problem. Now, this is Matthew we're reading from. Some of the gospel authors don't seem to know the geography they're writing about. That shows up, I think, in this week's reading, not necessarily here, but maybe, possibly. This is an interesting charge here. Like, don't go among Gentiles or Samaritans, but the lost sheep of Israel. So like, initially I was wondering, like, why say something like this? Why not just tell them to preach to everybody? Why discriminate? But I don't think that this verse is actually about discrimination. I think it's the opposite. So the entire premise and assumption of a rabbi traveling and teaching would be a Jewish rabbi, right? Is that he's only teaching among the Jews. So Matthew, remember Matthew's audience, he's mostly writing to Jews. So the addition of this part that seems to be absent from the other gospels, they don't really talk about, you know, don't go among these others, denotes probably like a, a consideration for his audience that may have been, you know, the audience may have been scandalized initially by the preaching to people other than the Jews. But I think there's hints here that this is coming. You know, Jesus is healing more than Israelites. The very fact that he mentions this at all means that it's like a foreshadowing of a time when this will not be the case. Charging them not to go there simply says, you know, not yet but it will be coming. So don't be surprised when it happens. Let's not forget that this is being written around 80 CE. This is Matthew, right? And he's using Mark as one of his sources from 70 CE. But all the way back in 40 to 45 or so, Paul was already preaching to Gentiles. So there's that too, right? This story kind of brings up for me, sometimes we think there might be 
policies that are static or or doctrine that's fixed. But the Lord can ask us to change the way we do things at any time that he thinks we're ready for it. I think one of the questions for me and that I might ask the listener is, what hints do you see in Scripture that the way we do things now will not always be the way that we do them in the future? That's a good question. One more thing to say about these two verses, Ben. A possibility I read about is that the focus should be on the house of Israel because once Israel is back in line, so to speak, remember these are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Once they're back in line, then the whole world would be converted. So the Gentiles would come later. But again, you'd have a hard time even getting where you need to go following these instructions. And as you go preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it's near, right? The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. So now these envoys, right? These apostles, these emissaries, they're being sent out and they look a lot like cynics in the Greek tradition, except they can't even carry a staff. The cynics would carry a staff. They would also have a purse. They would have a a bag, right? They carried a bag and it was a symbol of their self-sufficiency in some sense. They would maybe carry some cheese in there and some bread. Whereas Jesus's disciples are going to go out and they're going to eat whatever's offered to them without any regard for Jewish dietary laws, whatever's offered to them. They're going to depend on the people that they're preaching amongst and stay with them, right? And, and be fed by them. And so this means they're necessarily going to be in community with those people. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy and there abide till ye go thence. So I wanted to comment on verse 11 because worthy is one of these theologically loaded terms and it's translating axios, which does mean worthy, but also means suitable, right? So you're just looking for a good place to stay. Yeah, this isn't, in this context, isn't necessarily theologically loaded, right? We're just talking about, you know, a good place to stay. Right. I mean, because if you wanted someone who's righteous, right, then we'd be looking at something to do with DK, right? With like Dikaiosun as as justice, right? And when you come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. So you see, this is how you find out if it's a worthy place. Do Do they accept you, right? If you say shalom to them and they don't return it, well, then it comes back to you, right? And you move on. It was an interesting phrase, let your peace return to you. I was thinking, the thought occurred to me that's like, your peace is not lost when those around you reject it. It can just come right back to you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I have similar experience because they would say shalom aleichem, right? Yes. So in, yeah. in the Middle East, you know, when I was living in Syria and Damascus and the old city, and I was walking through the old city late at night, at the time, at least it was a safe place, you know, to be, but you know, it's late at night and there are more, there are more of them than there are of me and you're coming up on them and you say... Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. And they respond, wa alaikum assalam, and upon you be peace. And you think, well, I don't think they're going to rob me now, right? (laughs) (laughs) And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Much has been said about this shake off the dust of your feet. The best answer I've heard, synthesizing all the rest, is we don't really know what this means. (laughs) 
I will say when we talked about Doctrine and Covenants, this happens in Doctrine and Covenants in the, in the early church. And what appeared to be happening there, and I don't know if it's the same thing happening here, but this is the way that I think of it. This to me looks like sort of a mode, or we could call it an ordinance that he gives the disciples that seems to be a way for us or them to process our rejection, right? So we give it to the Lord, we dust off our feet, we give this rejection to the Lord, and then we can move on and forgive. Then we come to this verse 15, obviously haven't read yet, and this comparison is made to Sodom and Gomorrah. So the discussion here is about hospitality, right? And if someone's rejecting you, you shake off that dust from your feet so that you can sort of divest yourself of these feelings of you know animosity or, or resentment for being rejected. That's kind of what it seems like to me. At least that's the way I, I thought of it as we were talking about what was going on in the Doctrine and Covenants. I like that. And as we go into verse 15, yes, the, the misreading of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is that the sin of Sodom is sodomy. This is threatened, and in its, in its context is a misunderstanding, right? Looking at it through Western eyes, through 21st century eyes, the sin of Sodom in its context is a lack of hospitality. The ancient custom of hospitality, which is actually still alive and well, from what I can tell, in the Middle Eastern countries where I've lived and traveled and visited, you know, is sacred. It's violating a sacred, what do I call it, an axiom of society. I mean, it's just, you know, it's interesting because the Greek word for this is hostess, right? Where you get the word host in English. So, okay, you have the idea of host as you're visiting me, I'm hosting you, right? But there's also the hosts that are the armies that are enemies. So that there's the same thing in Greek, right? The idea that hostess can mean either guest, host, or enemy, the same word. And so the context includes the idea that as a stranger, meaning you're not from these parts, when you travel, you want to be able to find a place to stay. And therefore, when someone else is traveling and they need a place to stay, you're going to offer them a place to stay. And when someone is in your house, and this is part of the Sodom and Gomorrah story, you have a sacred trust. Even if they had been an enemy, they're their host and they're your guest. And there's a sacred trust that must be protected. And it's sort of a it's sort of axiomatic for society, right? It's it's a glue that's necessary in the context. And I think it's still a beautiful thing when it shows up again in, in the Middle East today that you can be taken care of as a guest, right? And respected and protected. I've certainly experienced it and very much appreciated it. So verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you forth as sheeps in the midst of wolves, be yet therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Our next pericope is the fate of the disciples. Matthew 10, 17 through 25, and the rest of that story is found in 24, 9 through 14. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. I just want to pause here because we're looking at some persecutions that are coming. 
as it were, mm -hmm. right? But this is being written at a time when these persecutions have already come and looking backward. And so did Jesus know that this was going to happen? And did they know from Jesus that this was going to happen? I don't know. I have no way of knowing that. That's possible. Another possibility is we saw it in the Old Testament that when this is written, we know it. And so now we're going to say that it was known before it was known. And then look, our prophecy that we wrote has come true, right? Because of course we're writing it after it happened. Those are just two possibilities. There are other ways to read it. But the point is the persecutions have already come, right? So we have the, the Jewish revolt. The temple was destroyed in 70, and now it's 10 years later. And so the persecutions were already happening before the revolt, or there wouldn't have been one. Here is also kind of a reformulation of the final beatitude on persecution, especially as we, you know, this is from Matthew. So we kind of see this is sort of a drawn out discussion of that idea. Let me go back and correct myself, Ben. It, the persecution against Christians wouldn't have caused the revolt, right? The persecution was against Jews. They revolted, but the Romans they're revolting against would not distinguish between Jews who are Christians and Jews who are not Christians. And so right. they're already being persecuted in that way. And by the way, this is exactly what happens to Jesus, right? He's delivered to the councils. This idea of handing over is, the, is translating, the words handing over is translating the same thing that later on when it's Judas Iscariot will, will say betrayed, right? But mm -hmm. the original says the same thing is handed over. So there's a lot of handing over going on and we'll come to Judas when we come to Judas. Actually, I think we, we, we didn't come to Judas by not reading the names of the disciples because when he's, when he's <laughs> named, right, they say the one who betrayed Jesus, right? Which right. again is, so I'm glad I brought that up. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death and the father, the child and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another, for verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. So, okay, this is interesting because it's saying these persecutions are coming. I'm saying they're already here. It's saying you can just flee from city to city and the second coming will happen. This is how I'm reading it. The son of man will yeah. become. The second coming will happen before you run out of cities to run to, right? And there are other statements similar to this that, you know, you will not taste death. Some of the people standing mm -hmm. here will not taste death before this happens. So clearly there's an apocalyptic idea here that doesn't pan out the way it's expected, right? This could be renegotiated and reinterpreted as a personal come to Jesus type of thing, right? So like you go through all these persecutions and over time you come to know Christ, right? The son of man, Christ comes into your life. And so it could definitely be interpreted or renegotiated that way as well. Yeah. And that's what we have to do with these texts. We have to renegotiate them. There's, there's really no way around it, right? In fact, you have to negotiate them, not just renegotiate them. Because if we have different gospels with different stories or the same stories told in different ways, or things that are different that aren't parallel, right? It's the parts that aren't parallel that make them different and the theology that's different, then we have to negotiate to begin with. The next verse, the disciple is not above his master nor the servant above his Lord. And the following verse, it is enough for the disciple that he be as his master 
and the servant as his Lord, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Our next pericope is the exhortation to fearless confession. And this is from Matthew 10, 26-33. You know, I forgot to say this earlier, but when I read from Matthew and the same story was in Luke, and it was also assigned this week, I read Matthew instead of Luke, just as in the earlier case I had read Mark instead of Matthew. Matthew and Luke were probably written around the same time. If there is any priority, it may have been Matthew then Luke, but they're probably written around the same time, around 80, and both of them use Mark as a source. And so if there is anything that's not in Mark that's in Matthew and Luke, then they added it. And if there's something in Luke that's different from what we read in Matthew, then that's Luke, right? That's just Luke. And so it's worth comparing the two chapters. That was from, I think it was chapter 9 of Luke, right? This is signed this week. So here in Matthew 10, 26-33, the exhortation to fearless confession, Fear them not therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. This is something else we covered in Of Saints and Sufis. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. Then I notice as I read through these texts with you and, and we discuss them, there's a lot of don't tell anybody, tell everybody <laughs> to keep track of, right? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, which things do we tell and which things do we not? <laughs> or when, right? Or in what context or to whom? So again, hoping to be an example to you as a reader, these are the things to think about and to pay attention to. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is something else we'll talk about in the Of Saints and Sufis podcast. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground? without your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my father, which is in heaven. Our next pericope is divisions within households, Matthew 10, 34-36. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I come not to send peace, but a sword. I have to pause here, Ben. This is one of those verses we have to deal with. The sword verses, huh? That's right, yeah. So the first thing I'll say is the sword is a symbol of discernment. The archetypal king has as his roles to protect and to provide, to be generative, right? He's going to generate an heir to replace himself and to judge, right? So judgment means discernment, and the sword is a symbol of discernment. I was thinking about this. We spend a lot of time in our podcasts and have over the years contextualizing and reframing scriptures that are apparently violent or narratives that may have violence in them, reframing these in a peaceful way. And here we have an example of a verse that when taken in its actual context, is clearly not a verse advocating violence. And so it seems really ironic to me that there's so much effort by what I would call casual commentators to make this verse about violence. This verse is used all the time 
when someone says, you know, Jesus was nonviolent. And they'll be like, oh, no, no, no. He says he'd bring a sword. Therefore, he's violent, right? Yes. <laughs> and as I said, this verse is not advocating violence. It's a verse predicting violence as a response to when the message of the gospel is shared. So this alternative plan, as Richard Rohr calls it, that Jesus is offering is so radically different from our conventional views that people will naturally try to oppose it. So it may elicit contention, but it is not the creator of it. And then, you know, because the sword does divide, it becomes again a symbol in that sense, right? And so that's what we're going to get here is division. But your point right. is well taken, Ben. It's not that Jesus is advocating violence, but rather that this is what's going to happen. The violence comes from the other side, as it were, right? From those who would not accept Jesus's nonviolent plan. And it's interesting because there have been others who have advocated nonviolence and they've met with violent deaths. I want to say for advocating nonviolence. I think that's clear in the case of Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi before him. Would you agree? Yes. For I am come to set man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And that's what's coming, right? And there are more verses and other chapters, maybe even in this week's reading that we'll get to. And if not, then in other chapters we'll get to eventually where we're dealing with the idea that Jesus is saying, you have to love me more than your family, because if you have to choose, right, between I'm going to follow the tradition of my family or I'm going to follow you, right, the one who's saying, come follow me, then that's what he's dealing with, right? And so this kind of message, this kind of radical message is going to upset family and other institutions, right? Our next pericope is the rewards of discipleship. So you have the, the conditions, the characteristics of disciples. Now what are the rewards? Matthew 10, 40 through 42. He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man, this is again a just man, in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. By the way, I'm reading from the King James Version. Rarely, when you read man in the King James Version, rarely is it translating man. It's usually translating human being. This is anthropos. There are aner, right? There are men specified. And I'll try to point that out when it comes up. But most of these men are just humans, right? Human beings. Human beings. Anthropos. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. I thought there in that verse about the cup of water, about the culture I grew up in in Venezuela, where we say, un vaso de agua no se le niega nadie. You do not deny anyone a glass of water. And where people would actually come and knock on our door and ask us for a glass of water and we would give it to them. Now, the people who threw the rocks to get the mangoes didn't ask us permission, but people did come to the door to ask for water. So here in the Gadarene demoniacs pericope in Mark 5, 1 through 20, I just want to point out that this man being with an unclean spirit is therefore in a place appropriate to an unclean spirit, which is in the tombs. And if they, the unclean spirits 
leave the man and want to go, you know, who lives among the tombs and want to go somewhere, then they would go someplace else unclean, like pigs, right? Mm, good point. I think it's interesting too that he's being held with chains, Ben. Uh, that doesn't seem humane, but clearly we're dealing with people. I think clearly, I say clearly, it looks to me like we're dealing with people who have mental illnesses. And the people at the time didn't know what to do with that. They didn't know how to handle it, right? Right. And so it, it's pretty inhumane to have people in chains. And we've seen this in, in our history and we've seen worse and we've seen better, but not quite best, right? And maybe we still haven't seen best and we can do better still. And he's also homeless too. So, you know, the idea that he lives among the tombs, I think of the people who live in the in Cairo, right? Among the tombs. You have the whole, a whole city of people living in the cemetery, which is huge. It would be, think of it like Central Park or something in the middle of New York. You have this huge cemetery in the middle of Cairo. So again, we have this man, he has demons, but we get to where he's asked his name. And he's, by the way, either calling by name or trying to call by name. That's a thing, right? That you would have power by knowing the name. And so he's asked his name and he says, Legion. Now, Legion is a military detachment, right, in Rome of about 6,000 men. So he's either saying he has 6,000 demons in him or a lot of demons. Let's put it that way, right? And then next, they're going to be, again, sent out of him into some pigs. How many pigs? 2,000, the text tells us. I think we're dealing with some hyperbole here, Ben. And that's if we're sure. meant to read the, the story literally, which I don't think we are. As a matter of fact, saying this is bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then next, they're going to run violently down a steep place into the sea. And depending on which gospel we're reading from, and I don't have them all straight, I don't know who said what, but the point is that with one author you get where today it's Jeresh and Jordan, and I've been there, you've been there, right? It's something like 30 miles from the sea, or it could be ancient Gerasa, which is Christ today, also in Jordan, about six miles from the sea. Either way, and I know Luke has been said not to know his geography of this region, right? Remember that these authors are writing after Jesus's death. We don't know who they are. They didn't necessarily walk with him, right? They're working from, well, Matthew and Luke are using Mark as a source. Mark has other sources. Matthew has other sources in addition to Mark. We have the Q gospel. We have oral tradition before that. And this is what we've got, right? But I don't think this is meant to be read literally, Ben. One reading that I found is the possibility that the use of the term legion is very much intentional, political in a sense, because we are talking about Rome. And so when we send them to the pigs, we send them back where they came from. Let's get rid of them. Let's get them out of here. Something like that. Well, I think your point about it mentioning the unclean spirit kind of makes sense in this context, right? So if it's an unclean spirit, then it's got to go to an unclean place. And so the pigs... You know, I, I think you mentioned this before, Christopher. I don't, I don't think Jesus is like intentionally trying to kill a bunch of pigs. I don't think that's the point of the story here. I think the point of the story is that Jesus is able to make people clean. Right. And yeah. even if it's 6,000 demons that go into 2,000 pigs, right? This is all hyperbole of unclean things, and Jesus can cleanse it no matter how great it is. That's the point. And by the way, those up to 6,000 demons were either in one man or two men, depending on which gospel you're reading, right? So yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think it's a valid question to bring up. You know, Does Jesus's nonviolence extend to animals in the sense of, I mean, would he would just kill 200 pigs? Well, you know, 
I don't think so. I don't think that's the point of the story. I don't think that the pigs ran six to 30 miles to jump into the sea either, right? I think it's not meant to be read literally. Our next pericope that I want to talk about in Luke 9 is verses 18 through 21, Peter's confession. There's a possible context to this. I think it's not only possible, but most likely, right? That is given in Mark 8 and in Matthew 16. So we wouldn't know it by looking at this week's reading alone. But in Matthew and Mark, who's a source for Matthew and Luke, we get that this is happening in Caesarea Philippi. And the reason that's significant is this is the the place of Banias. And Banias is actually related to, I think, our word baño in Spanish and another, similar in other Latin Romance languages comes from this. It's a place in modern Tel Dan area. I've actually been there. Have you been there, Ben? This no, is, I haven't. This is one of the sources of the Jordan. There are three sources of the Jordan. And there's a there's a... A rock face with a cave in it, and then there's this little waterfall and, and a pool, you know, and this is where the this is where the water's coming out, one of the three sources for the Jordan. And it was a sacred site for at least since the Canaanites. Okay. So the place where this is happening, this is the setting for this. Jesus is at this place and he's saying, Those living waters aren't the living waters I am. He's saying something like that. He's saying, people think this is the deal. I'm the real deal. And then he says, don't tell anybody. You know, the question comes up, who do people say I am, right? Some people say you're John the Baptist. Elias is on his feet again, whatever, right? He says, I'm the Messiah, but don't tell anybody. Well, later on, we got these persecutions we talked about earlier. Later on, when people find out that, oh, he, he's the Messiah, that's that guy that did that thing at Caesarea Philippi at our sacred site. So yeah, there's going to be persecution in that sense too, because he dissed all the pagan religions, all of them. In the next pericope we're covering here in, in the podcast, you know, the Transfiguration, Luke 9, 28 through 36, I wanted to talk about something here. In verse 33, after Moses and Elias come, Jesus' disciples think they should build tabernacles for them, right? Because they had this heavenly visitor. When the, when the heavenly visitor comes to earth, they need a tabernacle to stay in. That was yeah. the point of the yeah. tabernacle was for the Lord, right? For Yahweh. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention, Ben, about the, the boy possessed by a spirit, right? In Luke 9, 37 through 43. Mm-hmm. This is the story we mentioned earlier where you know, his disciples couldn't actually heal the boy. Whereas again, there were other people who weren't disciples who were healing people and Jesus was okay with that. Here in verse 46 says, then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest. And Jesus perceiving the thought of their heart took a child and set him by him and said unto them, whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you, the same shall be great. So here we have sort of a different version of this. We we haven't gotten to the other story about Jesus saying that child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but we have something else going on here with a child. And Jesus is setting a child in front of them as an example to say, okay, if you are willing to care for someone who can't reciprocate, someone who can't give you anything back. That is what it means to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Those who give without expecting gain, as in to a child who can't reciprocate, can't give you back anything in that relationship. It's one-sided, so to speak. I love that. When I read this verse, you know, where they're reasoning among them, which should be greatest, right? I'm reminded of a recent book I noticed. It's a new book from somebody named Rick Rubin. Have you heard of him? Yeah, that sounds familiar. I guess he's some kind of creative guy. I don't know what he does. Music, maybe? I don't know. I've never heard of him. But the the cover of his book got my attention. It's called The Creative Act, A Way of Being. So I looked into it a little. It turns out he was writing a book about how to be creative, and it ended up being a book about being. And so that's why it's called The Creative Act, A Way of Being. But in that book, he, hmm. he talks about... It wasn't in the book. I was curious about the guy, so I looked him up on YouTube, and I found this video, and he was talking about working together in a project, you know, like we do at Latter-day Peace Studies, or like the disciples are working with Jesus. And anyone who wants to put their idea for, for their idea to win, right? So put their idea forward for it to be the idea to win. So to be the greatest in this context, right? Is not really working as a team, right? He's not working as a team member. He's not really looking for what's best for the mm. project, right? but thinking of himself. So this whole idea of mm. who should be greatest in the first place, it's no wonder Jesus answered the way he did, right? Yeah, it completely misses the point. They've got the wrong idea, yeah. So that's a good lesson. Ben, the story we mentioned earlier about the guy who was casting out demons who wasn't one of the disciples, that's here in Luke 9, 49 through 50. Then Christopher, in verses 51 through 56, we get this story of Jesus saying he's going to head to Jerusalem and he's going through Samaria and a village of the Samaritans and they don't receive him, right? And it says, and they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. In other words, you know, he's a Jew and he's going to worship there and so they don't accept it. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now, a couple things to say about this. One, there are some texts that don't have essentially verse 55, or it stops it rebuked. It doesn't give the explanation, ye know not what manner of spirit ye are, and then verse 56. It doesn't have verse 56. So we basically just get this ambiguous rebuked them. Which should be enough if you understood the rest of Jesus's teachings, right? Yeah. So you can see why somebody might insert this comment. That's kind of what I was thinking. It seems perfectly in line with his teachings. It's possible it was added later as a way of sort of fleshing out the story and drawing a lesson from it instead of the ambiguous, you know, rebuked them. You know, you and I would have read the question of his disciples and would have said, of course not. Haven't you been paying attention? Yeah, yeah, then explain it. But, you know, this is sort of an interesting commentary on Old Testament as well, right? Because the disciples are, are saying, hey, you know, this happened. Elias did this, called down fire, and it consumed them. And Jesus is saying... That's not the way we're doing things. So there's definitely some commentary going on, Old Testament here, by the disciples. They're believing that the way that something they read done in the Old Testament is how it's to be done now. And Jesus is saying, no, how we actually act out 
the law and the prophets, how we how this actually happens in the life of a person is not that. It's the Son of Man has come not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Well, you said it, Ben. They're acting on how they read. It's not what mm-hmm. it says, how they read. And I think that's we have to distinguish between how we read and what it says. I think we tend to assume that how we read it is what it says. And sometimes we don't realize that there are other ways to read it. Other times we do realize that, but we reject them. And the question is, do we have the only true and living reading on the face of the earth? And are we really sure of that? And when I say we, I don't mean as a church, I mean as an individual. And so the question is, is everybody else reading the verse the same way you are, even within your own religion or within your own ward, right? I don't know. Probably not. The next question then is, what would Jesus say to your reading, right? Should we, should we do it like this, Master? Should we bring fire down from heaven like Elias? Mm. And so if you gave your interpretation of a verse, what would Jesus say? Yeah. How does this fit with the whole context of what we see Jesus doing and preaching among the people through that lens, right? And that's the crux of the matter, right? When you and I read that question of the disciples, we know, of course not. By the way, most probably do. But there are other verses, you know, where where we could fall into the place of the disciples and think, oh, this verse means this. And Jesus would say, no, it doesn't. Right. We just talked about the sword verse. There's the cleansing of the temple incident, stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are good examples. Again, in the full context, we have to understand This verse here, 56, the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Yes. So that is this week's reading, Christopher. Thank you so much for sticking it out with me. Thank you, Ben. Um, This is definitely more challenging, I would say, than I expected, but I'm also getting a lot out of it, too. Me, too. Thanks, Ben. We'll sign off for today. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado.